Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Take your Bible this evening and join me in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 14 through 15 in preparation for our study of the doctrine of the church. Uh, That doctrine that is in many ways what makes us as Baptists distinctively different uh, from uh, other denominations. We have a particular way of looking at the church and we also have a particular emphasis that we give the church. Uh, Baptists believe that the doctrine of the church... Uh, is very crucial uh, and very important. And in fact, what we will see following this article on the church is that there are also articles that deal specifically with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so again, these particular facets of the life of the church are very important to those of us uh, who are called Baptists. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, uh, my good friend Al Moeller refers to them as Paul's church manuals, and that's not a bad way of designating these books. Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy 3.14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. For if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground or the foundation of the truth. If you look at the article, Article 6, the church, it reads uh, this way. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous, it's an important word, local, another important word, congregation of what? Baptized believers associated by covenant, which we will talk about tonight, in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm glad that the Great Commission is found in the article dealing with the church. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. And that's a very important statement. Note what comes first, the lordship of Christ. Once that's established, the democratic processes can work quite well as we govern ourselves. However, if the lordship of Christ is not prevalent in a church, the democratic processes will run amok and you'll have all sorts of strife, discord, confusion, and even division within the body of Christ. Sometimes Baptists say, well, we believe in a democratic form of church government, which means I have the right to say anything I want to say. And the fact is, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, I don't. No, we don't. You have the right. No, you have the responsibility to be obedient to the laws of Christ living under his lordship. Our obligation is to find the mind of Christ in all things. It is not to speak uh, our minds or share our opinions. 
in such a congregation, then each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. And while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. Now, you'll note the one further statement that was added at the uh, uh, revision in the year 2000. The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and uh, nation. Then you see a listing of scriptures of which two things ought to be noted. Number one, the listing is not extensive. And secondly, there is no reference to the Old Testament. You say, why not? Because the Old Testament is not, uh, the church is not in the Old Testament. Now, we'll talk about in a moment why I believe, rightly, I think, and hope, that uh, Old Testament believers are now part of the church, but the church, as we're going to see, was uh, conceived when Jesus called the Twelve, and it was birthed on the day of Pentecost. And therefore, I think the Baptist faith and message got it right in that there are no references to the church uh, from the Old Testament because there are no references to the church in the Old Testament. But a number of very important texts found in the New Testament will begin with Matthew 16. And by the way, the only gospel... To mention the church is the gospel of Matthew. It occurs both in chapter 16 and also chapter 18. But the church, that is the word ecclesia, does not occur in Mark, Luke, or John. But Matthew 16, 15 through 19, he said to them, Jesus is speaking, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Foundationally, I think he's speaking of the confession that Jesus is the Christ, but there's a number of things that uh, entail with that. But we'll just note that here he says, I am, future tense, going to build my church, and will the church be on the defensive? No. The church will be on the offensive. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There is no bunker down, uh, hunker down, fort mentality in the Bible when it comes to what the church is to be about. We're not on the defensive uh, drawing back, but rather we're on the offensive attacking the gates of Hades. And the Bible says they will not prevail against the church. And I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then in Matthew 18, where Jesus speaks of the church again, interestingly, the issue is that of discipline. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, 
Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That is an outcast. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bound on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loosed on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, note the context. When we come together to exercise church discipline, I am there in the midst of you. And then a very important text that I think is foundational to our understanding of the church as it is revealed for us in the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 42, and 47. Then those who gladly received his word, Peter is preaching his Pentecostal sermon, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day... About 3,000 souls were added to them, added to the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. In the breaking of bread, most likely a reference to the Lord's Supper, uh, to the communion meal that they would observe, uh, the fellowship meal, and in prayers, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. First Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you and the you there contextually is talking not about the individual, but about the church? Do you not know that you, the church, are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Ephesians 1.22 and 23, he has put all things under his, the Lord Jesus' feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 3.14 and then verse 20 and 21, very important text on the church. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. As an aside, the word church ecclesia occurs 114 times in the New Testament. 109 times, no debate, it is a reference to the church to the spiritual body of Christ. So the overwhelming occurrences of that word are to the church, and most of them to the local church. And again, 109 references in the New Testament to the ecclesia of God. Of course, Ephesians 5, through 32 draws the beautiful analogy between a husband uh, and his wife and Christ and his church. Colossians 1, 18, and he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. First uh, Timothy 3, 1 through 13, which we will impact in our study, deals first of all with the office of the elder, the overseer, the pastor, and then also it deals with the office of the deacon. We'll note that in just a moment. Uh, if you would like to see a synopsis of what First Timothy 3, 1 through 7 says, here it is in Titus 1, 5 through 9. For this reason, I, Paul, left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders, uh, overseers, pastors in every city as I commanded you. Now, what are the qualifications for the office of the pastor, of the elder, of the overseer? If a man is blameless, husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, 
not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as it has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Uh, Peter's uh, insight on the office of the pastor is found in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. And very interestingly, either as a noun or a verb, he will use the word elder, he will use the word overseer, and he will use the word pastor. The elders, the uh, episcopal, the, the, the presbyteros, excuse me, we get our word Presbyterian, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am also a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd. Uh, that's the word from which we get our word pastor. It's interesting. The noun pastor only occurs one time in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, where the Bible speaks of God giving gifted men to the church, and one of those gifted men is the pastor-teacher. We use the word pastor, but in our history, uh, and even in the Bible, the predominant word is not pastor, poiman, uh, it is not episkopos, bishop, or overseer, but it is rather the word presbyteros, or the word elder. And so in many Baptist confessions and in many Baptist histories, you will find that is the predominant word used for the highest office of responsibility in the church. But here, using the verbal form, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as an episcopos. We get our word episcopalian from it. Serving as an overseer. How, Peter? Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And then finally, Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. You say, who is this multitude? It's the church. Uh, where are they from? From all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So if that is a biblical overview, let's enter into a theological discussion of the doctrine of the church. The church of the Lord Jesus was conceived with the calling of the apostles, that's important, and birthed on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Its nature and mission then is revealed in the New Testament. Notice I mentioned a moment ago, there are no Old Testament references in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Scripture then reveals the church's form of government, its officers, its ordinances, its mission, and its laws. Thus, the doctrine of the church is a revealed doctrine. It is not something that we would have come up with on our own apart from the revealing work of God in His Word. Now, the New Testament, we believe, teaches a congregational church government. Such verses as Matthew 18, Acts 2, 6, 15, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, Revelation 2, and so on, place the authority for discipline, doctrine, and government in the members jointly. Now, in my notes, I'm going to say it again, but in my notes when I got through with that, I added this statement. 
That means church membership matters. That means church membership is a privilege, not a right, and it must, must be monitored. And I even use the word church membership must be policed. Say, why do you say that? Because a congregational form of church government will not work well apart from a spiritual body. And so you all have at least heard the horror stories of the infamous Wednesday night business conference when the pastor has a particular agenda he would like to see the church move forward with, or perhaps it is the reverse and the church has decided it is time to get rid of that pastor. And so you have a Wednesday night business conference, and sometimes to our shame, we even invite the local police or sheriff to be there to ensure that things do not get out of control. And rather than having a service like we do tonight with maybe 50 people here, oh, we'd have 500. And you would have people here sitting in these seats ready to vote that have not been here in years. And yet, amazingly, these persons who at best are carnal, at worst are lost, will have the same vote as the pastor and the other spiritual leaders of the church. That is wrong-headed from beginning to end. I actually would not be opposed, and I don't know what our policy is. I have confidence in our leadership, so I don't worry about it. But if we had an annual renewal of church membership, that would be just fine with me. In fact, I think it would go a long ways in ensuring that those who have truly been regenerated and born again are the ones who are involved in the decision-making processes of the church. Now, let me say this, and I'll move on. I do believe in congregationalism, but I also believe in strong pastoral leadership as well. And I see no inconsistency with having strong pastoral leadership with congregational affirmation coming alongside of it. In fact, I've often said this, and uh, Brother Bill is not paying for me to say this tonight. Unless my uh, pastoral leadership in my church, and by the way, even though I happen to be a seminary professor, I am under the spiritual authority of Dr. Bill Bullier. Unless uh, Brother Bill does something illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, he has my 100% fellowship. And if you come against him, then you're going to have Danny Aiken standing between you and Brother Bill. Because unless he has done something illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 tells you and me we are to obey him who has the authority over us. So I don't like that. Well, I don't care if you like it or not. Get right with God. Repent and get your heart right because God called Dr. Boyer to be the pastor, not you. He called him to be the shepherd, and that means then you are a sheep, and sheep are smart if they obey and follow and trust the shepherd. That's all biblical. It's all in there. And again, I don't say that as one who has a dog in this fight because I'm just a regular, normal, giving, attending, at least on Wednesdays, member of this church. Okay? And so I don't have anything other than a commitment to be true to the Word of God. So I like the next paragraph. Each church then is a Christo-democracy operating under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
It is also an autonomous local congregation. In other words, nobody can tell White Crossroads Baptist Church how to function as a local church as long as we don't violate any secular kinds of laws. All the members jointly have responsibility then to do everything that Christ commanded the churches to do and should govern the church by his law. So it's there in your notes. Thus, a regenerate church and a viable church membership is biblical and it matters. Next paragraph. The New Testament then requires that the churches admit those alone who are qualified. You say, well, what qualifies someone for membership in the local church? Number one, belief in Christ. A credible confession of their repentance and faith in Jesus alone to save them. Secondly, a scriptural baptism, which means believer's baptism by immersion. These are prerequisites to membership. Once more, church membership is a privilege, not a right. Thus, believers become a church of Jesus Christ when they jointly pledge to be a church of Jesus Christ. In other words, a group of persons come together and commit to one another that we will indeed establish here a church and function as a church under the Lordship of Christ. So implicitly or explicitly, I believe it ought to be explicit, they covenant together in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. To covenant then in the faith includes teaching and upholding the truths of the gospel. Now you say, uh, Danny, uh, do we have a church covenant? We certainly do. You say, where is it? On the last page of your notes. I uh, asked them to shoot it over to me. And so for just a moment, if you'll turn over there, we do have a membership covenant that is uh, obligatory upon anyone who wishes to join themselves to this body and function as a member of this church. And so to honor our time, I'm just going to read through it with you, but I think it will be helpful and instructive. Following is the membership covenant, which is which in general outlines the responsibilities of membership at Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. Quote, having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized by immersion with believers' baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ, and then ten affirmations follow. One, to commit ourselves as members, to honor, esteem, and love our staff and one another. To pray for each other constantly and to manifest tender regard for our reputation. To walk together in Christian love by the aid of the Holy Spirit. To strive for the advancement of this church and its ministries. To promote its prosperity and spirituality. To sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. To contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church the relief of those in need, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations, and to manage all the resources God has entrusted to us in such a way that He is glorified, to encourage family and private devotions, to educate our children religiously, to seek the salvation of our relatives, friends, and neighbors, to encourage each other to abstain from all drugs, food, intoxicating drink, and practices, which bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith, to walk worthy of our calling in the world, to be just in our dealings, 
faithful to engagements and exemplary in our demeanor and conduct, to avoid malicious use of the tongue, not to be a stumbling block, and to keep our testimonies above reproach, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior, to seek to identify, develop, and utilize my spiritual gifts and abilities, and to seek a place of service within the body with the support and affirmation of the body, to watch over one another in brotherly love, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feelings and Christian courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of scriptural guidelines to secure it without delay, and finally to pledge that when we move from this place, we will unite with some other church where we carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. Now, I like that. Uh, I imagine that like most churches, we are rather gracious and kind uh, and gentle in our, um, what's the word I want to use here, enforcement of it. I mean, I don't think we probably sit down with all of those who Sunday after Sunday after Sunday don't give a dime to the work of this church and say, uh, I need to talk to you. You're, you're in violation of the covenant. And so we need to talk to you if you're going to remain in good standing in this church. Now, I know all of you are thinking, oh, dear God, I, I could not even imagine such a thing ever happening. There are churches all over the world where they could not imagine such a thing not happening. I spoke one time at a church in Australia. Uh, there was a uh, bout, I guess, on the particular Sunday where I preached 200 people in attendance, which is a large church in Australia. And so uh, afterwards, I asked the pastor, I said, I'm just curious, how many, how many members do you have of your church? Four or five hundred? And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. And he said, uh, we have uh, 50 members. I said, 50? I said, well, well, brother, there were 200 people here today. He said, yes. And, and you're saying most of them are not members? Most of them are not members. I said, well, why is that? He said, because church membership here is renewed annually. And he said, your membership is renewed if and only if, one, you are faithful in regular attendance. Two, you're walking appropriately before the world as a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a tither. He said, that rules out about 50% of all the people that attend our church every week. And he says, you don't tithe, you're not a member. And I thought, wow, well, what would happen in our churches over here? Well, I know what would happen because I saw recently in a study that even among evangelicals, those of us who claim to believe the Bible, only 25% of all evangelicals tithe. Seventy-five percent don't tithe at all. In fact, I, I, I actually have this for the message Sunday. I, I may share it if I'm in a good mood. But thirty-three uh, percent of all fundamentalists give nothing. And I believe I'm correct that also twenty-five percent of those who claim to be evangelicals give nothing. Not a single dime all year long. All year long. Not week. All year long. Not a single dime to the work of the Lord. Now, I know this is the Wednesday night crowd, but that doesn't mean that I should assume that you have your heart and your life right in this area. So I'm just going to tell you, if you know Christ as Savior and Lord and you don't give, you're in the flesh. You're out of God's will. And I'd love to hear you make the argument for me as to why you give nothing 
to the work of the Lord. I, I, I would like to hear it because I'm still looking for one that I find compelling and 30 some odd years in the ministry. I just ain't got that argument before me yet. But maybe you'll be the one that will convince me. Oh, my goodness. Here is the one person in the body of Christ who legitimately has no responsibility to give anything to the work of the Lord. I, I, I'll be open to hearing your argument if you would like to make it. All right. So come back then to page uh, to the paragraph where we were. Drop to the next paragraph where it says each congregation is responsible. Each congregation is responsible under Christ to interpret Bible truth, proclaim it, and defend it. This is not possible, though, unless they agree together on the central truths of Scripture and gather these truths into a confession of faith. And yes, our church also affirms not only a church covenant, but our church also affirms the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. All right? To covenant together, then, in the fellowship of the gospel implies agreement. To maintain the discipline by which Christ intended the preservation of the fellowship. The discipline then includes admitting those only who credibly confess faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. Correcting, warning, and rebuking those who stray from truth or righteousness. Excluding those who refuse the church's loving entreaties to return to the path of truth and righteousness. And restoring the repentant to fellowship. Now, other church duties include maintaining the two church ordinances ordained by Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We'll actually break those into two studies, Article 7, as well as exercising the spiritual gifts that God has given the church for its mutual edification. Furthermore, Christ has also given the church their mission, Matthew 28, Acts 1, Ephesians 4. They are indeed to seek to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth, which not only do we have a statement of this in Article 6, we have a whole statement on world evangelism in Article 11, which I like very much. Thus, Christ gave this mission to the churches, not to boards, not to conventions and or agencies, ultimately... Who is responsible for reaching the unreached peoples of the world? Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. Not the North Carolina Baptist Convention. Not the Southern Baptist Convention. Not the IMB, NAM, or Southeastern Seminary. Ultimately, the responsibility for evangelizing this area, this state, this nation, and all the nations is the responsibility of local churches. Churches, though, we agree can better fulfill this mission by cooperating together and establishing such efficient channels as boards and conventions. But the congregation bears the responsibility to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Furthermore, boards and conventions, and for that matter, seminaries, are not the church. Question. Will you ever come to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and watch us perform a baptism? No. Will you ever come to a chapel service and watch us observe the Lord's Supper? No. You say, well, some other folks do it. Yes, and I think they're wrong. Because it is the responsibility of the local church to be the custodian of and the protector of the ordinances and our seminary is a parachurch entity that has been raised up, I believe, by God to assist the local church, but not to replace the local church. 
That includes Campus Crusade for Christ. That includes InterVarsity Fellowship. That includes uh, 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 Athletes in Action. You name all these wonderful parachurch organizations, and they are wonderful. But they are not to take the place of the local church. Boards and conventions are not the church. They are merely means to accomplish the church's mission. Furthermore, and it's always fun to talk to the media because they always get this one wrong, there is no Southern Baptist Church. Note I'm using capitals there. There are Southern Baptist churches. This is a Southern Baptist Church. But just as there is a Catholic Church and a uh, Presbyterian Church USA and a United Methodist Church, there is no Southern Baptist Church. There is what? A Southern Baptist Convention. And so conventions are the creation of the churches subject to them, and conventions are not churches. Now the officers. Christ has ordained pastors, also called elders and bishops, and deacons as the officers of his church. Now watch this very carefully. You'll, you'll find this entertaining. The church, the churches elect and appoint persons who fulfill the scriptural qualifications for these offices. Qualified men alone may serve the office of elder. The gender of those serving in the office of deacon is not addressed. You say, why? Well, I don't mind putting my cards on the table. I personally believe that if deacons function biblically and scripturally as I think the Bible teaches, I have no problem having uh, males who function as deacons who minister primarily to men and having deaconesses, females, who minister primarily to females. Now, again, if I were king of the world, I would ordain neither. You say, why not? Because I can't find it in the Bible. You say, but we do it. Well, I know we do it. And I'm not saying it's unbiblical. I'm just saying it's not in the Bible. Furthermore, most Baptist churches in our Sunday Convention have an unbiblical view of what the deacon is. The deacon is the guy that keeps the pastor in line. The deacons are the guys who handle the business of the church. Once more, I would say, find that in the Bible. Good luck. No, the word deacons, diakonos, means a table waiter. It means a servant. And so deacons are those who serve the body. Furthermore, let's just think pragmatically for a moment. I'll move on. You've got a single woman in your church that needs ministry. Question, which would be better to send to her, a man or a woman? Like, this is not a hard uh, decision to make, is it? She needs a godly, mature, older woman. So the fact of the matter is, whether we call them deaconesses or not, a good church will have them. They will have older, godly, mature women. Uh, had you read like Titus 2? Older men are to disciple younger men. Older women are to maturely disciple younger women. That's just basically being good deacons and deaconesses. So, interestingly, and remember, Al Mohler was on this board. Adrian Rogers was the chairman of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 committee, and he agreed to leave this as it is. It might stun some of you to know that uh, John MacArthur has deaconesses in his church. And uh, John Piper has deaconesses in his church. 
And Chuck Swindoll, when he pastored the free, uh, first free, uh, the uh, free evangelical church in Fulton, California, had deaconesses in his church. They were not ordained, and they had no authority over the men in the church. All of the leadership positions in the church were rightly and biblically filled by men. So, something to think about. We can talk about it some other time if you like. Throughout history, then, Baptists have affirmed ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church as a major distinctive separating them from other Christian groups. The Baptist faith and message expresses explicitly and implicitly the distinctive Baptist understanding of the church as the people of God. I highlight for them very quickly first. The BFNM identifies the church as a spiritual organism. I like that. Not an organization, an organism. The word church translates to the New Testament word ecclesia. The word took on the meaning of God's people. One, the church exists by the initiative of God, the one who calls sinners to himself. Two, the church is a people gathered by the Holy Spirit. God has called the church out of the world. Consequently, the church is a people separated from the world. Three, God called the church unto himself. Thus, the church is a people commissioned to serve the living Lord. Thus, the purpose of the commissioned people of God, I like that phrase, the commissioned people of God, is to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the church, it is a people. It is not a building. It is not a denomination. It is not a religious institution. Two, the Baptist faith and message characterizes the church as a believer's church. A local congregation of baptized believers. Thus, the nature of the church as a believer's church necessitates what? A regenerate church membership. That is in part why we don't baptize babies. Because we do not believe anyone can be a part of the church that has not been born again. And you cannot be born again unless you consciously, knowingly, place your faith in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, something an infant is not capable of doing. And so we believe that salvation must precede church membership. John Hammett, wonderful professor over at the seminary, says that regenerate church membership is a Baptist mark of the church. In fact, he says it is the Baptist mark of the church. I would come close to agreeing with that, though I would quickly add it must also have as a essential characteristic of a church the word rightly preached, the ordinances properly administered, and a disciplined body. Next paragraph. As a corollary then to regenerate church membership, the Baptist faith and message affirms a believer's church is a covenanted community. It says, quote, we are associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. Uh, the term covenant then involves the making of promises of commitment to God and each other, as we saw just a moment ago when we read through our particular church covenant. Now, this is interesting. Nathan Finn over at the center gave me this insight. Throughout Baptist history, the church covenant, rather than a constitution, functioned as the basic church document. Thus, the Baptist faith and message describes two areas in which church members make promises, the faith and the fellowship of the gospel. The faith then provides the doctrinal unity of the church. Fellowship is a partnership in spreading the gospel message. And again, on the last page of your notes, you saw what our particular one looks like. Third, the BFNM sets forth the ideal of a Christ 
Christ-centered church. Christocentrism is the governing principle of congregational church life. The Baptist Faith and Message contains four expressions of this Christocentric principle of congregationalism. First, the BFNM identifies the church as belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the church is governed by His laws. Third, each congregation operates under the Lordship of Christ. Fourth, each member is responsible and accountable to Jesus as Lord. So once more, the church does operate through democratic processes, but it is not a mere democracy. The autonomy of the local church means the freedom of each church to what? Obey Christ unhindered by external human constraints, including other ecclesiastical or religious bodies. So again, just in our world, can the Southern Baptist Convention, that only meets once a year in June somewhere, tell this church what to do? Nope. The North Carolina Baptist Convention over there in Cary, can they tell this church what to do? Nope. Uh, the local Raleigh Association, can it tell this church what to do? No. You say, well, then who tells us what to do? Jesus, as revealed in His Word, we operate under His Lordship unhindered. Thus, the New Testament describes the church exercising the Lordship of Christ through congregationalism. We see, for example, the church in Jerusalem selected servant leaders. The church in Antioch set Paul and Barnabas apart for missions. Thus, each church as a total body is responsible for maintaining true doctrine. And each church is responsible for disciplining its members. Uh, we should be concerned about members of other churches. But ultimately, the discipline of another member of another church is the responsibility of that other church. Again... The officers are leaders of a congregational church, are pastors and deacons. Pastors are the shepherds, responsible for the feeding, protection, and care of God's people. The term deacon literally means servant. Deacons then function as the servant leaders of the body of Christ. Fourth and finally, the Baptist Faith and Message briefly outlines and very briefly outlines an eschatological church. The local church, like ours is the concrete, visible expression of the church. The local church is the primary emphasis of the New Testament. But the Baptist faith and message also refers to the eschatological church, what you sometimes hear people call the universal church. You say, what is meant by the phrase universal church? All believers of all times, anywhere, any place, they are part of the universal church. Sometimes you'll even hear the phrase, the invisible church. I don't like that at all. Because the idea of the church being invisible is nonsense based upon the New Testament. But the idea of a universal church constituting and consisting of all believers of all ages. So let me conclude by saying this. Though I do not believe the church is in the Old Testament. Though I do believe the church was birthed on Pentecost, I do believe that at that moment, retrospectively, all of the Old Testament saints were indeed made a part of the one body of Christ, the church. So when we get to heaven, uh, do I expect that um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, hey, for that matter, John the Baptist, I believe they will be a part of this wonderful thing called the church, the bride, 
the body of Christ, I indeed do, because the BFNM gets it right. The church is, in one sense, a local body, but the church is, in another sense, the redeemed of all the ages. Now, in your notes on the next page, just for your benefit, I give you just a little chart that shows you the major issues you have to deal with when we talk about the church. That is, your vision of it, where exaltation, edification, and evangelism drive it, uh, the role of women in the church, the Lord's Supper, Christian giving, preaching, baptism, church discipline, and the officers of the church, both pastors and also deacons. And so if you want to do some further study into those texts individually, there they are categorized for you in a topic-by-topic arrangement. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the church, and I thank you specifically this evening for this church, White Crossroads Baptist Church. I thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy. I thank you for the oneness that we have in the faith. I thank you that this is a church that is passionate about extending the church and taking the gospel across Raleigh, across North Carolina, across America, and in particular, across the ocean and to the nations and around the world. I thank you that this is indeed a great commissioned church. And Lord, we acknowledge this evening that the Lord of the church is Jesus. And that it is our responsibility to find his mind in all things and then obey. And, Lord, if we'll be that kind of a church, we'll be a church that is blessed by you. And we'll be a church that is honored by you. And we will be a church that is used by you to extend your gospel to the ends of the earth. So may we be a true, faithful, spiritual body of believers, loving King Jesus, loving one another, and loving the lost as you have commanded us, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.